HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food, Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I am unbelievably excited about today's show because uh, joining me is Anastasia Cole-Plakius, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of the Brooklyn Grange Rooftop Farm. And for those of you who have been listening to Heritage Radio and me specifically, you know that when the, when the Brooklyn Grange Rooftop Farm was just getting off the ground, Anastasia and her co-founder, Ben Flander, were regular guests on what was then the main course with Patrick Barton. So um, we've got a lot of ground to cover and then that covers the next 10 years. But she uh, is also the author of a book, The Farm on the Roof, What the Brooklyn Grange Taught Us About Entrepreneurship, Community and Growing a Sustainable Business, which came out in 2016. You can rush right out to your local uh, Amazon.com or other online or whatever bookstore, probably online, um, and uh, uh, obtain a copy of that. And 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 just to give you an idea of what's been going on with these folks, um, not only have they been running the Brooklyn Grange uh, and I guess Eagle Top as well, but they have another farm. And in addition to that, they have just opened uh, a really big rooftop farm on the Jacob Javits uh, Convention Center in New York City, uh, where they are running that location. So, I mean, unbelievable journey over the course of 10 years. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a great joy and a pleasure to have you on the show after all this time and to get a catch up. So let's start at the very beginning. Describe the process of building the Grange and you know the, the arc of where you are now. Um, thank you so much, Katie. What a treat to be back. I really like, I just wish we were in the shipping container. Um, but it is <laughs> know, treat right? to be, be back together, even in a virtual space. So thank you. Yeah, so much for having absolutely. Me um, yeah. So we actually started just a quick note of clarification. Brooklyn Grange, um, started Ben, my business partner and co-founder Ben Flanner started Eagle Street Rooftop Farm with Annie Novak, who is, uh, still running that operation today. Uh, right. Brooklyn Grange is, is a separate, separate organization. So, um, oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're, 
going way back here in 2009, Ben and Annie started Eagle Street Rooftop Farm. And uh, I was actually hanging around with the uh, owners of Roberta's trying to get back into magazine writing. So I was writing a, an article about uh, about Roberta's and, you know, of course, knew, knew Patrick Martins from way back in the day. And uh, he was building Heritage Radio. And I, I think I still have the pair of mm-hmm. pants that I painted the radio station in. <laughs> that Heritage Radio green is still on my jeans. <laughs> Come on. Oh, that's great. Seriously. <laughs> and, uh, and I still have uh, audio recordings because I was trying to write this article. And, the, you know, mm-hmm. the article, the, the Chris and Brandon would talk about how they were going to put this, this garden on top of the roof of the radio station. That's and right. I had a and bunch of did. questions about it. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I ended up actually ultimately abandoning the article and helping them build those gardens. And oh, wow. So, yeah. So we had built that the gardens on top of the radio, another site uh, in a backyard in Bushwick uh, owned by a couple of regulars. But very quickly after building these sites, we realized nobody knew how to grow anything. And then that I reconnected <laughs> with when Chance, uh, Ben and I's third co-founder. Oh, right. I loved her. She's uh, yeah. what a wonderful woman. Yeah. And I, I begged her. I knew she had a green thumb. She lived in the neighborhood. I said, can you help us figure out how to grow something in these gardens we built? And she said, I don't work for free. So I said, Chris Brandon, you got to hire her as a pizzaiola, which they did. And right? she ended up basically, uh, you know, writing these to-do lists for me and this little ragtag crew of volunteers that we would get to garden um, on those, uh, in the, on top of the shipping container. And it was then that I saw That's an right. article about Ben Flanner. Um, and Annie Novak at Eagle Street, and I reached out via email, and Ben wrote right back. I think he was actually trying to pick Roberta's up as an account and sell some vegetables. He thought it might uh-huh. be the, the end to getting a, a sales relationship going, and we ended up trading <laughs> visits. And uh, we just, we you know we really we were all sort of Eagle Street is six thousand square feet, so um, you know Ooh, about six hundred square meters. It sounds big to a New Yorker, right? Because we're going by like our apartments. <laughs> it's yes, like a relative right. concept. But for a farmer, it's it's a garden. You know, it's it's tiny. Yeah, and it's not even an we acre, realized, really. It's not an acre. It's not even close. An acre is about 42, right. 43,000 square feet, I think. Um, right. So we, you know, we're realizing here that, that what we need in order for these projects to be more sustainable is is scale. And, and so that's really how uh, Ben and Gwen and I came together is what would it take, you know, and we were very fortunate that Ben is very much a, a data-driven person. So he'd taken really meticulous data at Eagle Street of what he was able to yield per square foot. And so we were able uh-huh. to use Ben's data to extrapolate, okay, how many square feet would it take to operate as a, a business that's sort of fiscally sustainable and potentially right. even profitable? And that's really where this started. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so now you have, uh, so you have a total of three farms that you own, and then we you are contracted. The well, you lease the rooftop, but you own the infrastructure of the farm, essentially. Yeah, that's right. That's and then right. with the Javits location, you're contracted out as a as the farmer, but you don't have to own. You didn't have to kick in any cake on building it out or you know, putting in the yeah. uh, infrastructure that you needed. You just, you just swan around and say, well, now we need to plant, you know, this type of, what are they going to grow there? I mean, I, we're going, of course we're going off topic here. I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Javits, but I'm just curious, like that's a pretty big space and you yeah, have trees. So, uh, if I understand correctly, you planted trees there. 
That's right. Yeah. So Javits, I mean, we're fast forwarding way ahead of uh, Brooklyn Grange's entire business history, but it's yes. kind of perfect because, you know, Brooklyn Grange, we built our first farm in Long Island City. It was one acre. It, um, you know, it was just a tremendous labor of love. We had the support of an amazing community. We got a 20 year lease on that space or 10 years, and then we signed for another 10. Uh, uh-huh. So we have that lease through, sorry, no, it, it was a 10 year we signed for another five. So we have that lease through 2024. And actually, uh-huh. um, we should circle back around uh, because there is some news about that roof that I, I, I'd love to, to share with you. But great. Um, we, we built that, we operated it for a week, and we recognized that, you know, even a, an acre, even a 42, 43,000 square foot roof is not going to be uh, able to really operate as a profitable enterprise and, and we built our navy yard farm in 2012 that's 65,000 square feet and wow. we learned a lot operating the long island city farm that we brought to bear on the design and construction of the navy yard roof um deeper soil mm-hmm. you know just things like where you put your wash pack station um yeah. by the time we built our third farm in sunset park in 2018 through 2020 there were several phases of construction there we actually built a, a giant indoor events hall with a full kitchen wow. at that farm so wow. our you know our designs have really evolved and the farms might not look so different on the face of them um to, to uh-huh. somebody who hasn't farmed before but there are some pretty meaningful design uh learnings that we've applied over the course of these three farms and which brings us to present day, you know, when we responded to the RFP to build the Javits farm, we were just so excited to to get that contract because, you know, in a lot of ways, they're an ideal client. And in some ways, we got to build for Javits the farm that we've always wanted to operate for ourselves, right. specifically uh, because it's on a new building. All three of our our proprietary farms are on top of these big pre-war old buildings which are great because they're strong enough to support the weight of our soil yeah but this new building at Javits Center not only was it built specifically with those that weight rating in mind so it can it can bear the weight of of the you know the 30,000 square feet of uh green roof um the greenhouse and the 10,000 square foot rooftop orchard, which has three foot wow. deep soil uh, with 38 apple and pear trees on it. But potentially even more exciting than the first rooftop orchard is the fact that they were game and actually had already been planning when we approached them to ask. They built a giant underground cistern to recycle oh, wow. runoff. Right. So underneath that new construction, the, the Javits Center is an existing convention center on Manhattan's west side, and they added a whole new building, which is where our farm is. Underneath uh-huh. that building is a 344,000-gallon cistern. Holy and, smokes. Yeah. And when I went for the first time after the installation, because I was actually out on parental leave when uh, when we were installing that uh, the orchard and everything. And I came back from leave and it was, um, Hurricane Ida had just happened. And for those of us who are here in New York city or in the environs, it was, it was pretty shocking seeing the devastation from Ida. I mean, there were cars just abandoned on the street that had been flooded. 
And so I'm walking up the construction entrance to Javits and I walk by this car, this abandoned flooded car with its, you know, wow. windshield. It's crazy. And uh, I go upstairs and I'm watching Farmer Ryan, our farm manager, and, and, and Stina, his co-manager, uh, watering the very first crops at the farm at Javits. And I'm realizing that water is rainfall that uh-huh. fell during Hurricane Ida. It got captured in this underground cistern. Instead cool. of flooding the streets of New York City, it is now watering crops that will contribute to, you know, ecological benefits like reduced urban heat island effect and, and you know, combined and green, and, combined and sewage and overflow. Carbon dioxide. Yeah, right. Yeah. All of those things. And, yeah. And that was, yeah, so that was a pretty profound moment. Um, and oh, that yeah. was, you know, coming back from parental leave to this business that we, in this, you know, it was our 12th season farming rooftops in New York City and, and having this be the sort of um, – one of my first uh, days back, it was it was a really meaningful and uh, and profound moment, and it felt like oh, yeah. a win for for not just urban farming but for green infrastructure and um, in New York City. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So let, let's let's go back to uh, sort of um, nuts and bolts here because I, I'm just curious. Like, you know, how, give us some statistics on how much you're producing. Like, how much do these farms, on average, produce? Where, where do you sell it? Like, how, how did you get all of that stuff going? I mean, are you selling mostly into restaurants still or are you selling into uh, retail markets or how does it work? Yeah, it's changed a lot over the years. So, when, you know, when we started, like I said, we were just trying to figure out, could we make this a financially sustainable business? And, and let me be clear, there were there are a bunch of sort of in, intrinsic environmental benefits to green roofs that are inherent to our model of rooftop farming, which is to say rooftop farming that takes place on a green roof. Um, So we we always sort of imagine this business to be, you know, we didn't have language for it when we were launching in 2010, but, you know, we we were sort of following this triple bottom line model, business model, or, or the three P's model that looks not only at financial profitability, but also people and the planet. But at the time, you know, <laughs> the the profitability part of it seemed like the biggest hurdle uh, to mm-hmm. overcome, and and that was really where our our focus was was on those numbers. And so we were just obsessively trying to increase our yields and yeah. increase value per square foot across the farm. So what are sure. the most highest value crops that we can grow? And dollar Good for question. donuts, as it were, um, yeah. you can't grow donuts. So what we found <laughs> was, you know, salad greens. That was really where we yep. lived. We, we grew a ton of salad greens. They're high, sort of high yield, um, you know, fast growing, very space intensive. Yeah, fast growing. Yeah. And it reached a point where, you know, we were growing a, a ponderance of salad greens for wholesale accounts, mostly restaurants. Um, right. That's and, what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And about a hundred thousand pounds a year uh, of, of vegetables. Um, wow. Not all salad greens, some tomatoes, you know, some heavy things too, but for the most part we were, we were really, that's where we lived was those high value salad greens, herbs, you know, kale, chard, tomatoes, peppers, um, yeah. 
a lot a lot of variety, but uh, really looking looking at value per square foot. And then we started really looking more closely at what value meant for our business. Um, and then COVID hit, and you know, we it was a really profound moment for us because it was we were looking at we we'd been in business for a decade. Um, yeah. It was our 10 year anniversary and it was a really good moment to step back and examine our business model and whether it was uh-huh. working for us. Uh, and so COVID kind of gave us the opportunity to do so. And what we realized is, you know, the value of the food we were growing, we were really looking at it in a one dimensional way, which is, you know, as a, as a financial profit, what can we yield per, per square foot? And, and what right. we found is that there's value uh, in in this in these crops that might be far greater and more impactful for somebody who doesn't have access financially to compensate us for twelve dollars a pound for salad greens. Yeah, in yeah. fact, salad greens might not be a really valuable crop for that person to take home. Um, right. So in a couple of years prior, we'd actually, when we opened a Sunset Park Farm, we were speaking with community stakeholders and, and folks in the neighborhood about, okay, what, you know, what, what would excite you about this business? How can we design this location of our business differently than our existing locations to be really impactful for the neighborhood? And what we kept hearing is this neighborhood needs low cost uh, or no cost, fresh, healthy foods. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so we were like, well, you know, we can't really do that because we have to pay rent on this space and, you know, we're a business, but we ended yeah. up actually finding a family foundation, uh, who helped, uh, helped, supported us in applying for funding, um, alongside a nonprofit food pantry run by NYU Langone called The Table. Oh, and The Table, cool. we and The Table ended up, yeah, partnering getting this funding and we grew them, uh, I, you know, I, now I'm, I'm spacing on the number of pounds, uh, but it was a pretty significant amount of food for their, uh, for their pantry here in sunset park. And it was great because the, pa- the folks, the clients who would pick up their food at this pantry would then report back to the, the folks there. Oh, you know, we didn't really love, it's also, it's set up like a grocery store. So it, even if they sure. were reporting back directly, you could see nobody took the, nobody t- took the right. tomatoes nobody or nobody took the, the yeah, radishes. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but we, we did have a really great system. You know, the table really communicates with the clients that they, they work with in the neighborhood. So they were able to tell us, you know, choy, the choy was a huge hit. We actually would love to see more different types of choy, bok choy, pak choy, but there are, you know, a number of other different uh, cultivars. Um, and then we were able to get other recommendations for vegetables that people in the neighborhood, Sunset Park has a a sizable Chinese American, uh, community. So we got a lot of feedback about Chinese American veg or Chinese vegetables that, um, those families would find really, you know, exciting and that are culturally relevant and comforting comfort food, uh, in this neighborhood. So when COVID hit, we took that same model. And we said, okay, so what about our other two farms? And 
we were actually able to work with, we got a call from Blundstone, the boot company, the Australian work boot company. Really? They are amazing. They asked us, what do you need? What can we do? Um, You're kidding. Amazing. And we said, you know, people are really, people are hungry and we need to get food out. And they, they said, all right, let's make it happen. And so they fund our Brooklyn Navy Yard partnerships with community-based organizations. Um, we work at the, out of the Navy Yard with Food Issues Group, uh-huh. which is an amazing organization and would be great folks to have on the show. Uh, yeah, and we can with, talk about that after, yeah. Send yeah, that information. Yeah, Brooklyn Rescue Mission also, um, and Bedsty Farm is an incredible, incredible organization. So, so the Navy Yard, we have these partnerships, and then at our LIC location, uh, we partnered with an organization called uh, Our Children, uh-huh. and we found funding from you know stakeholders in the community, uh, like our landlords in Long Island City, RXR Realty. Um, Astoria Kaufman Studios, Silver Cup Studios, you know, these are big businesses in the neighborhood who really wanted to see their communities, you know, not just survive, but thrive through this COVID pandemic. And so, they, yeah, they fund, they fund uh, the donation of our, our harvest. And we've reached a point now where, you know, more than 30% of our food is being distributed at no cost. Uh, to these CBO partners. That's fantastic, Anastasia. That is a really great story. So um, just to get more, you know, into the sort of nuts and bolts of this, how do you, like, do you have a, a packing facility at each one of these? Like, I'm always curious, many farmers find the packing, processing and packing and distribution, like a huge impediment to profitability. Yeah. So how have you guys managed that? Like what, what is your process and distribution model there? I mean, a like, big do you part pack of right it, on the farm. It's a, we do. Yeah. We wow. pack right on the farm and, you know, I mean, we're dealing with vegetables. Um, yep. so it's not, it's not livestock. Um, it's not eggs, you know? Um, yeah. so it, it, it's, it's quite, it is a simpler operation, but yeah, designing wash pack, has become, you know, I mentioned sort of the learnings that we've applied with each new iteration of, of our, our farm models. And, uh, you know, the wash pack at our third farm in Sunset Park is is definitely a more sophisticated setup than the wash pack at our very first farm in Long Island City. Sure. Um, the wash pack at Javits is much more sophisticated. So, uh, you know, finding ways to set up food safe and hygienic um, spaces that are small um, that are protected from the elements without breaking the bank. Uh, It's, it's definitely, you know, there, there are some of the most expensive areas of our farming operations for sure. Uh Yes, I would think so. Uh, You know, just the infrastructure of having the, you know, the water and the, um, and the waste disposal there, because I mean that water is then filled with dirt, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that has to be dealt with in some way, and yeah, uh, so is the roof. and then right, and then also <laughs> you're just the packing what you're packing it in. That stuff yeah. is expensive. I can yeah, I know that from personal experience. Well, All remember those and packaging also, items. We're talking about not just 
when I said that, you know, we took COVID as an opportunity to look at how the farm, you know, defines value, uh-huh. that the packing materials are not just expensive financially, but they come at an environmental cost. Absolutely. Uh, so one of the, the other reasons we're kind of um, swooning over the farm at Javits is because the, the all of the food that we grow there uh, just goes downstairs to the kitchen, on-site kitchen of Cultivated, the, the catering organization that um, provides all the food for Javits events and meetings. And, oh, wow. And, you know, they... They, uh, there was a, a pretty sizable donation of harvest that was not utilized by the cultivated kitchens. And I know there's some plans that Javits has to keep, keep those donations going and, mm-hmm. um, you know, figure out where, where any food that's not used by cultivated might go. But for the most part, we're really keeping all the harvest there on site, which is really just from an operational standpoint is incredibly efficient. From oh, an yeah. environmental standpoint, is also really efficient because yeah. you're using, you know, container the reusable bins uh, right. that are sealed instead of bagging things in plastic. Right, right, or or God forbid, foam, or you know, if you're shipping produce, you know, you got to protect it from getting crushed, so it's going to go into foam boxes, or yeah, it's going to yeah. go into at least cardboard with plenty of plastic. So yeah, I mean, that is an extraordinary thought, and there is. Uh, another guy who I'm sure you know, Paul um, Lightfoot, I think his name is, who mm-hmm. does uh, Bright Farms, who's he's hydroponic, but his vision was to have a farm on top of every grocery store that was providing, at the very least, salad greens and herbs. I interviewed him. I did a whole like two or three years worth of urban ag, and then I just kind of moved on to different subjects. Um, and it wasn't until I saw that piece about you guys opening the Javits Center Farm, I was like, oh man, I got to get in touch with these people. So, you know, it is, I, I do want to talk for a minute about the way urban agriculture has accelerated over the last decades, because you guys really were the pioneers. And I know you both uh, do a lot of speaking engagements. Like wh- what's the climate now? As you told me 10 years ago, Anastasia, that this was really going to take off and become something that actually was doing like what you're doing, say on the Javits uh, farm where you're, you know, producing enough food to uh, manage all of those events and whatever. I wouldn't have, I would, I never gave Urban Ag any credit for that. I really didn't. I thought, you know, this is like, these are vanity projects. It's a cute idea. Restaurants can buy, um, you know, and it's got some cachet as a marketing thing, but I don't see it ever becoming a really significant, uh, you know, contributor to food security in urban centers. And, and you guys are proving me wrong. So I, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Um, evolution of how urban agriculture has become quite mainstream. I mean, if I'm being honest, I think we're both right. I think, <laughs> you know, I think urban agriculture does have it, it, it you know, we refer to it um, as sort of Swiss army knife of benefits, depending on what you're trying, what aims you're, you're sh- shooting to serve there right. are a variety of different models and growing methods that can address those goals, right? But sure. at the end of the day, to be clear, urban agriculture can never and should never replace the the rural food systems that have been feeding us for 
history and will continue sure. to do so. You know, I mean, we, we have to be careful with anything. I always, you know, I, I always say, just be really careful with anything that masquerades as a panacea, because yeah. <laughs> that's where we get into trouble. And I think, you know, when we started this business, people would say, you know, these farms are going to be on every rooftop in the future and, and feed in entire cities. And it got to the point, it was, it maybe it was never our initial thought, oh, we're going to feed all of New York City. But it, it, it was repeated so often to us that I think we even started to believe it a little bit. And <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, you know, 100,000 pounds between our three locations, it's, it's not it's not even a drop in, in an ocean in terms of what New York City needs to feed itself. Right, right. But that's okay. You know, we don't need to feed the entire city to have an impact and to have value. Um, right. So, so I think we, I think we're both right. I think, um, you know, urban agriculture, we're seeing, we're seeing it more frequently uh, at both a commercial scale, like Brooklyn Grange, like, you know, Gotham Greens, although they're doing more, I think, peri-urban greenhouses. I don't know that they're building in, uh, in, you know, city centers at all. Right. Anymore. Although they, uh, they opened up, they opened a big one up in Providence. Is it in the uh, city about a year or is it ago. Just it's right in the city. city. I oh, cool. oh I it could be right outside of the city, but I I understood it to be within the city limits, but I, I could certainly be wrong. I think they're going right outside the city. Bright Farms is not in cities at all anymore. I mean Green Oh really? Houses. So they're not doing their thing of doing it on top of supermarkets. That was his original vision. I wasn't crazy about the guy, but you know. He actually <laughs> they were gonna build Bright Farm on top of the building where our Sunset Bright Farm is now. They had oh, a, is that right? they had a ribbon cutting. Oh. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh so I think uh you know, and I and I think there was a moment in time when it did you know, when urban agriculture was everybody was hopeful that this was the panacea to all the that ailed our our food food system and you know it it was both naive and um i think it was wishful thinking uh that that we could just fix this issue of the way cities are feeding themselves um so yeah, yeah so I mean, I mean you don't see you don't see big greenhouses being built on top of supermarkets or really in cities anymore i think i think gotham's interesting gotham's doing everything at ground level uh -huh. um, I don't even think they're building on rooftops anymore. And but why you do you think that is? Why is that? Expensive. Because it's it's very expensive to do that, and the infrastructure obviously is not always going to be there. A That's lot right. of buildings are not built to withstand that kind of weight. Yeah. Um, right. I know that just from my brother having a large garden on his rooftop on Madison Avenue and Seventy Second Street way back yes. in the day, and he started to collapse the roof. Oh, no. <laughs> he had three thousand pounds of dirt up there on the seventh floor. <laughs> And he carried it up in bags. <laughs> it was a walk-up. Wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love a, him. Yeah, it was very funny. I mean, the whole thing was very funny. But it was a great little garden. But, yeah, I mean, it's just like that was a perfect example of, like, why rooftop gardens don't really take off. Yeah. And, you know. But I, I think it's interesting that you said – I what I'm liking about the model that you are describing that you guys are following is the hunger relief effort, uh, you know, impact of it. Because – um, if that is the only thing that you accomplish, you know, that's already a major thing to provide access to fresh uh, vegetables in uh, 
poorly served communities. I mean, I, you know, I think that's huge because I know my one of my best friends used to run the pantry at St. John's Bread and Life. And she had a network, like a web of farmers from upstate that she was doing business with that would, you know, bring in stuff that they weren't using or didn't sell at the farmer's market or whatever. However, she made that happen. I don't know. It was magical. Um, and so she would get some great stuff. But it was a little bit hit or miss. You know, it wasn't always consistent. Uh, it wasn't always that great. You know, it, it was it was a it was a good idea, and it was um, sort of the it was great for the farmers too because they got paid, obviously. Um, but it was not perfect, and it was it required trucking. Yeah. You know? So it wasn't the perfect model. I, I like this much better that you're doing. Yeah. You know, thirty percent of your stuff is going right into the community. I think that's absolutely great. Well, and it's it's incumbent on that funding, you know, and our and the generosity of folks who are working in solidarity with farmers, with CBOs, with uh, our neighbors in the community who choose to to, to eat these vegetables um, towards you know a more equitable food system. It's it's everybody working together because mm -hmm. you know to your point, like inconsistency is it's problematic. And and one thing I will say is you know you don't see these big greenhouses being built in cities or on rooftops because it's so expensive, but um, you do see them producing salad greens mostly, but food uh, year round. And that is right. one thing that's really challenging is, is, you know, that we are a seasonal business, uh, right. but Brooklyn Grange does more than just grow vegetables. And, and I think that that's where, you know, I think the trouble with this model is that it's, it, you know, it's the same, the trouble with it is, is it's very, uh, power, which is that it's the Swiss army knife of benefits, which is great, right. but it also makes it really difficult to communicate to people. So everybody wants to hear a couple things. They want to know, are you the biggest mm -hmm. rooftop farm? Uh, mm -hmm. and then like, how many people can you feed? That was a question we used to get constantly is how yeah. many people can you feed? How many people can one of these farms feed? It's like, I don't know how much do they eat? But, yeah, you know, right. I started by talking about salad greens, which used to be sort of our, our bread and butter crop. And now we grow a lot more high calorie crops, which might sound confusing. But, you know, think about it. If you are, you know, somebody who's trying to get their kid enough calories that they're growing, uh, that, they're you know, they're not falling off their growth chart when you bring right. them to the pediatrician, you're not you know, you, especially if you're on a tight budget, salad yeah, so, is not, salad gonna be is your, not your answer <laughs> and not you're, at $12 a pound. Right. No, no. Yeah. So in fact, you know, where our food's gotten a lot heavier, but you know, our per square foot dollar value might drop. We might, you know, we might make the conscious decision when we look at our, our crop plan for the year, that it's less important to us to, 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 you know, to grow that fiscal value per square foot of what we're growing um, than it is to, to create value for somebody who really can't get uh, fresh, healthy food for their family. Mm -hmm. We can provide it. Uh, and like you said, we can provide it on a consistent basis because we found these funding partners Mm -hmm. who are committing the funding for an entire season so we can promise our CBO partners we will deliver you X every week. And right. you, in turn, will deliver us feedback 
from our, our the community with whom we're we're you know working in solidarity towards this this more equitable food system. There, you know, that's what we get back from the community is is this feedback. Um, right. This was Fantastic. super valuable to us. We loved this. Here's a, a different vegetable we would really be you know would love to to see in our distribution next week. Okay, cool. We've never heard of this vegetable before. We'll look into right, it. And then right, it turns right. out to be, you know, our favorite thing to grow. Um, and it's worth noting that, you know, it's not all or nothing. It's not just about no cost food distribution. We, we also oh, sure. switched our CSA program over um, to a sliding scale, which mm-hmm. means, you know, you self-select based on your income, but also based on other factors that we lay out for you, make it really easy. We actually have a calculator tool on our website. So you could put in, okay, I make X dollars a year, but I also have access to family wealth, uh, whatever, whatever. So I'm going to self-select into the upper income CSA uh, slot, or maybe Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a contributor share. Uh, and, and if I do, that means that somebody who, uh, does not have access to the same level of wealth that I do might be able to access the same fresh food that I am, uh, because at the end of the day, fresh, healthy foods should be a right that's shared by all and not a privilege shared by few. So, you know, absolutely. we're really looking at, okay, how can we just distribute our food more equitably. We call it our equitable food distribution program, but um, that's really like the, you know, the mission of our, our farming operation at this point is how can every distribution channel that we have at this point uh, become more equitable uh, right, right. rather than just, you know, looking at that easy, just be profit easy, to, driven. Yeah, easy right. to calculate that number. Right, absolutely. We got to take a short break. We'll okay. be right back with Anastasia Kolplaki is talking about urban farming in general and uh, the Brooklyn Grange uh, rooftop farm at all in particular. So stay tuned for that. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese. The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, so let's let's pivot a little bit because we're going to have to wrap this up in a few minutes, but let's pivot a little bit to um, you have developed these partnerships in order to work more closely with your community. Um, what, what do you see uh, the role of legislation, cities, policy in terms of furthering the kinds of work that you're doing in that space? Because that that actually seems like uh, something worth uh, you know pursuing rather vigorously, it seems to me. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, where we really, we've been pushing for pretty hard is uh, incentives for green infrastructure in cities. Um, uh-huh. Because, uh, you know, we're, we see the potential benefits of green roofs uh, and green and green space, urban green space, to really mm-hmm. mitigate some of the, the ecological uh, hardships that weigh most heavily on, uh, you know, people of color and uh, yeah, low-income communities, folks without access to wealth in in our cities. So there's a kind right. of environmental racism happening uh, that I think is exacerbated by a lot of commercial development, but that we really could be actively working against with the way we're we're going to be rebuilding our cities. And, and, that, and that's the reality, right? We're going to be rebuilding our cities. Yeah, in true. The next, in the next several decades, we have to. It's inevitable. So, so let's, oh, yeah. you know, let's make sure that that development is happening in a way that's thoughtful, that's equitable, um, and that's sustainable, that, that makes our cities more resilient. So we uh, lobbied council member Rafael Espinal, um, mm-hmm. who then really took, a, took our request for some sort of carrot for the uh, real estate world to include green uh-huh. roofs on new developments. He took our, our request for a carrot and ran with it and said, let's just go stick. And he and some colleagues uh, um, in, the, in the environmental committee passed local law 9294 about two years ago that requires uh-huh. green roofs or solar panels on all new development or major um, major constru- uh, renovation of buildings in new york city wow uh so that's exciting um in terms of urban ag you know i would i would really ask the community garden coalition what they need i think Uh you know commercial urban agriculture should be able to advocate for its needs um i think we need to really look at how we can support community-based farming, which is often happening on a much smaller scale and in ways that are more decentralized. So it's really challenging for, you know, your neighborhood community garden to have the same amplification and voice, even though, you know, in aggregate, those spaces make up for the majority of of our growing space in cities. That's true. They just don't have the same ability to, you know, catch the ear often. That's not, that's not true. Look, the community gardeners of New York City are made of tough stuff and they do advocate for themselves pretty um, impactfully. But, but I just want to be thoughtful about, you know, making space for all this commercial urban ag and our needs when we have these incredibly valuable institutions that can't even get leases. Yeah. You know, they're operating on license agreements. So in a way, that would be sort of the beginning of of, to, of changing a system to become more uh, friendly towards urban agricultural uh, efforts, whether it is uh, at the behest of, of a for-profit institution like yours or whether it's a community garden. Either way, certain requirements need to be in place or certain certain access or whatever you want to call it you know, certain parameters have to be set so that a community garden has basically what you're saying is the same rights as somebody who is holding a lease. 
Yes. Right? Because you, you often see people in community gardens being shut down because the developer, somebody has decided to develop that property. I mean, that happens all the That's time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know how you uh, regulate that, actually, but yeah. <laughs> Because that's tough for a landlord who says, oh, I want to develop this property. Oh, no, I'm sorry, you can't because there's a community garden there. Well, that's not going to do, <laughs> you know, that ain't going to work. But maybe they can say, well, we'll build a green roof and you guys can farm up there. That's right. right? I love that. I love that idea. Hey, if you uh, if you want, we'll come and build a green roof. <laughs> we'll, right. we'll do the, we'll do the well, design. I love that you guys have that whole, you have a huge portfolio of incredible yes. Uh, yes. projects that you've been on. Should we take a minute to talk about, um, you know, just to do like a, a nice plug because we do have to close this down at about, I don't know, we have about two more minutes really. Okay, so yeah, let me give you the, the elevator pitch. Yeah, talk, <laughs> yeah, give us the elevator pitch and tell people where they can learn more because you do a lot of events and you rent out event space and then yes. promote, promote yeah, yourself, that's girlfriend. Where the, that's where the value is. Again, look, there's a, there's a yeah. whole lot of work for an organization if we're not actually feeding entire cities, right? So what is the point of farming yeah. on rooftops? The point is really, you know, connecting urbanites with green space and, and nature, uh, you know, and of course, food and farming. And we do that through uh, not just our farm department, but our two other departments. We design and build. So our design build department designs, builds, and often maintains green spaces for clients all over New York City. We consult on projects all over the world. Uh, but yeah, we're talking wow. about everything from like backyard, you know, garden redesigns to, uh, you know, vegetable gardens on top of public institutions like, uh, you know, uh, you know, green walls, we do it all. Uh, and then our, our programming and events department, you know, is, is doing everything from educational workshops, which also operate on a sliding scale, um, and tours of the farm to weddings and conferences. We did our first fashion week show, uh, this past oh, fall. Come on. Was a <laughs> it was amazing. It. Yeah. The designer oh, yeah. Kalina Strata, and they were just phenomenal to work with. So, um, yeah, so we, you know, we really, we look at our spaces as opportunities to, you know, we, we have a educational nonprofit partner, city growers that brings K through 12 youth up to our farm. So if you're a teacher or if you're a, an active parent who wants to get their kids class up to a rooftop farm to learn about what we're doing, look up citygrowers.org. They are incredible. They of course operate on a sliding scale as well. Um, so, yep. you know, from learning laboratory to, you know, wedding, uh, uh, altar to, uh, to, runway uh we really we we try and find avenues for new yorkers of all different interests comfort levels with with farming and compost and dirt um to get up here and <laughs> to enjoy this green space every sunday uh spring through fall our sunset park farm is open to the public free you don't have to sign up or anything you can just come up hours and location are on our website brooklyngrangefarm.com and the best way to keep up with us and feel like you're you're following along with our season is via Instagram. Our handle is Brooklyn Grange, um, and we do lots of fun stuff on that feed. Fantastic. Anastasia, thank you so, so much for doing this. This was really oh interesting gosh. for me. I mean, what to see treat. the arc of your success uh, and the evolution of the farm and the whole 
ethos behind it is just really fills me with joy. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this show. So um, you'll be back. I'm sure we'll make something. We'll make a good reason for you Get guys ben to Get Ben on. Get Ben on and he can talk to yeah, you about wash yeah. pack design until he's blue in the face. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that might be valuable to anybody who's doing a farm yeah. stand or anything, whether it's city or rural so anyway thank you to my sponsors and thank you for listening folks we'll be back next week uh have a good one in the meantime what doesn't kill you is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.